Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing the legendary actor Delroy Lindo. I mean, this is a dope conversation. I learned so much. I mean, just his presence and being in his presence is something that I'm very thankful for. Um, before I get to, to Mr. Lindo, though, I, I wanted to talk about the Derek Chauvin trial um, happening in Minneapolis in response to the death of George Floyd. And notice what we called it, the Derek Chauvin trial. Please make sure uh, that your friends, your coworkers, everybody are not calling this the George Floyd trial. Please check them. Uh, before they they get too far. I know I speak for a lot of black folks and having to fight the feeling that as we embark again on another police murder trial, there's a nagging sense, as we always feel with these trials, that despite overwhelming video evidence, we'll probably hear more about Mr. Floyd's past and what was in his system at the time he died than we will about the knee on his neck that actually killed him. And we've prepared ourselves mentally and emotionally for an acquittal. I know I have. It's become the reality for us when police kill us. Now, while many of you know me from this podcast or CNN in my day job, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. So there will be two things I'll be watching, the makeup of this jury and the extent to which the prosecution will effectively keep the jury's attention on what matters. And that's the actual cause of Mr. Floyd's death and the disregard for human life we saw from Derek Chauvin. I'll keep my expectations low, as I do in most of these cases, but I think in this case, justice may actually prevail because of the direct line between the officer's behavior, and there's no reasonable defense for his knee being on a man's neck for almost nine minutes other than whiteness and a blue uniform. While that's often enough to quit most officers, I do remain hopeful that this past summer's response and the world's eyes being on this judge, this prosecutor, and this jury will actually help us receive some semblance of justice this time. And that's that on that. Now on to my interview with the consummate pro and amazing actor, Delroy Lindo. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults with zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast today. Uh, so we start each one of our episodes by walking our guests through the arc of your career. And yours has been a story career from the stage to film the television. And very few actors have had the varied career that you've had. Talk about how you choose roles to take and how you've maintained such a presence as a triple threat on the small screen, the big screen and in theater for as long as you have. I attribute a lot of that to my foundation in the theater. Hmm. I made a distinct choice when I left acting school. I went to acting school in San Francisco in the late 1970s. And I made a, a distinct choice to 
come back to New York because I wanted to work in the theater as opposed to moving to Los Angeles to work in, in to try to work in television and film. The reason that I wanted to work in the theater is because I, I felt that I would be, get the opportunity potentially knock on wood if things worked out to do different kinds of work. And that's exactly what happened. I did different kinds of work in the theater, different parts, different kinds of parts. And that gave me a range. I was being presented with a range of opportunities, a range of challenges. And in meeting those challenges, I was, you know, exercising my instrument, my act, acting instrument in different ways and shapes and modes. And I took that um, into my work in film and, and television uh, later on because I had worked in varied kinds of material, very kinds of plays in the theater. So that's how it worked for me. Is that, is that, and this may be a very elementary question, so I apologize before asking, but no. it, it appears that the theater has a greater sense of difficulty. Do you find that the case or is acting acting? Well, acting is acting. However, the challenges in the theater are, are different uh, in as much as Working in the theater is that much more immediate. It's you on stage with your castmates, whoever they are, and the audience. If you make a mistake in the theater, in the middle of a scene, you have to depend on yourself <laughs> to uh, correct that mistake, however you will. In film, you, the director says cut and you get another opportunity. Even when you have, uh, when film is going through the editing process, they can correct things. That's not the situation in the theater. It's that much more immediate. And that is a specific challenge of working in the theater. But if you think of, as I do, if you, if you think of your acting instrument as a muscle, right? Like um, just similarly to, go, similarly to going to the gym and exercising your mm -hmm. muscles, then your theater muscle gets trained to respond in the immediate. And for me, that is in the immediate circumstance that you're presented with or challenged with. And for me, that's a, a wonderful training for the acting instrument. So that when I started to work for the camera, uh, I had a certain kind of ethic and a certain kind of ethos in place because I worked in the theater for 10 years before I started doing film. I had that ethic in place that I then transferred over to my work for the camera. Along those same lines, probably last question along those same lines, but do you get something from the audience that you don't get when you're talking about film? No question. Now, I want to, in, in defense of film, and I'll speak about that in a second, again, there's this immediacy. There's an immediacy of, of, of connection and, and um, communication between yourself as an actor, as the actor on stage, and the communication that is happening with the audience. And that's immediate. And you then all become part of this journey of telling the story. And the audience is part of that. They're a party to that. Having said that, while the audience is clearly not as immediate working for the camera, the audience ultimately ultimately working in, in film still becomes a part of the process as soon as the film is released. Mm -hmm. They then become part of that 
that that process, that journey, if you will. And on some level, Bakari, it's it's no less satisfying for me, particularly when it is a film that people that audiences respond to. The satisfaction that I get from being in a film that audiences have a positive response to is certainly not as immediate as it happens in the theater, but it is no less um, satisfying. You know, one of the recurring themes in your career on TV and, well, excuse me, in movie and theater is that you've had so many memorable roles in Spike Lee films like Hawkers, yeah. Crooklyn, Malcolm X, and now with the Five Bloods. Talk about yeah. Talk about your relationship with another great Morehouse man, Spike Lee, uh, and why you decided to collaborate with him for now your fourth project. Well, you're you're giving me a little bit too much credit. You're you're (laughs) saying I decided to collaborate with him. Um, You you have to understand. I'm sure you do understand that it starts. The process starts with Spike. The process starts with Spike picking up the phone and saying, hey, man. What are you doing? I have this project. So once once he makes that call, my answer to your question is it's 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 always easy for me with Spike to to say yes, because. The projects, the four projects that I've done with him, what they each have in common. Is. A clarity of. Of a vision. I'm really clear about the story that he wants to tell. And because I'm clear about the story that he wants to tell, I am then likewise, I then likewise have a clarity about how I plug into that, how I connect to the story that he wants to tell, what my job is. And um, yeah, you know, in, in Five Bloods is released, uh, I don't know, six months ago, right? So I've been talking to the press. Mm-hmm about the film for the last six months, fairly consistently. And uh, I've really come to appreciate, and this may sound strange after all these years, but I've really come to appreciate Spike's, or I have an enhanced appreciation for Spike's particular genius, which is not to say that I didn't appreciate him before Bloods, I did. But he and I have shared a lot of interview spaces together in support of the film. And what I've come to appreciate about him, even more so than I, than I did before. First of all, the man has an encyclopedic brain. The, the things that he pulls from in a, in a conversation, historically, culturally, socially, he pulls from all these different areas. And, and having an enhanced sense of how this man's brain works how he then applies that brain to the stories he wants to tell. The metaphor that I use is a train, being on a train. He then invites me to get on the train. And I'm clear about the direction that the train is going in. I have a clarity about how he wants to construct the train and and, and have it go in a certain direction. And I am then on that ride with him. Mm -hmm. And he entrusts me. He invites me to come on that ride with him. And not only does he invite me to come on that ride, he trusts me to take care of my area of the work. And you can't, you can't, you can't buy that, man. I mean, you, you, that's invaluable 
for any actor to be entrusted with that, to be bequeathed that kind of trust is profoundly affirming. Mm. Well, you know, we, we're talking about the five bloods and specifically about your character, Paul. Why did you take that role? Man, because it's a great part. Because <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's the short answer to your question. I took the role because in, in spite offering me that part, saying, this is what I want you to do. Uh, um, will you consider playing this part? And I read the script a number of times and it becomes very clear to me that this is a great classical, classical in the sense of August Wilson, Wilsonian, Shakespearean. That's what I was, my ne- you literally, my next question was, we, we hear the word Shakespearean used to describe a tragic character. And I think, Paul, he fits that bill. No question. But I say Shakespearean and Wilsonian. Uh, August Wilson. Um, He does absolutely fit that bill. A large, maybe even slightly larger than life, incendiary, emotionally incendiary, anguished individual. And an actor's kill to play those kinds of parts. That's why I took the part. The journey, I'm sorry, just the emotional journey that Paul traverses during the course of the film and the various kinds of emotional peaks and valleys that he traverses. That's gold for an actor. That's why I took him. Why do you think so many people were drawn to that character though? Because Paul is the one, I know you had great actors in this movie, but everyone still remembers and was drawn to your character. Why is that? I'm not sure, but perhaps because of the anguish that is on display with Paul, which I'd like to believe is inherently human. That's one of the successes of the film, as far as I'm concerned, that Spike as storyteller is presenting these men with all of their faults, all of their foibles, and in the final analysis, in their humanity. And with, with, with Paul, we see it runs the gamut. It's interesting, man, because... One of the earlier critics who reviewed the film, and he's actually the only one that I can recall, he referred to Paul as a, as a bully. And I was, I was, I was kind of sort of hurt. Uh, <laughs> I didn't friend, get that, but I, okay. I, I, he looked like he was emotionally hurt, but I didn't get bully. I didn't get bully. But this cat, this cat referred to Paul as a bully. And, and, and what was disappointing, okay, if, you're, if, you're, if that's how you're seeing Paul, either you're missing something or I miss something in presenting this character. Because certainly there's a, you know, he's bombastic and, 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 and over the top, but there's this anguish. And that is, for me, what is driving this man that's causing all of this, this acting out and this, these behaviors. And um, I think to answer your question, perhaps audiences responded because they recognize this in these inherently human and flawed traits on display with this man that perhaps audiences either relate to or can empathize with or who understand on some level. What was your initial reaction to Spike 
writing your character, Paul, as a black Trump supporter. Did that give you any pause? Of course it did. Of course it did. Because that was, you know, that was, you know, anathema. <laughs> Great. Really. Yeah, exactly. You know, to everything that I stand for. But while it's been, you know, it's been widely um, documented that I, I, I said to Spike, man, I, I'd rather not do that, man. And, and I, I try to, I try to, I try to convince Spike. You know, when, when nah. Spike has his, man, I was on a board of trustees with Spike. And when he has his mind made up. It's made up. It's made up. But, but it's usually right. Asking, it's usually right, but it's made up. Yeah. But what <laughs> I was asking him to consider, and he did consider it. What I, what I was asking Spike to consider was making Paul an arch conservative without actually being a Trumpite. And to his credit, he said, look, man, give me, let me, let me think about that. And he did. And he took a few days and thought about it. And then he texted me and said, no, I really need Paul to be a Trumpite. Fair enough. I then said to him, give me a few more days, man. Let me read the script again. And I read the script two additional times. And once I was able to rationalize in my head how and why Paul could could have cast that particular vote in 2016, I was fine. But I'll tell you this, on some level, it's one of the greatest gifts that this part, Spike, and this part could have given to me in making Paul a Trumpite. And I'll tell you why. I say that because in being compelled to have to understand how this man could have cast that vote in 2016, a vote they say never say never, but it's a, it's a vote that I would never have cast myself. And having to come to terms with, okay, how, how did Paul cast that vote in 2016? It unlocked certain aspects of the character for me because I had to then delve into the depth of this man's loss. Um, you know, what the text gives me and gives the audience is that I lost my, my wife in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Huge, mm-hmm. a huge loss. It gives me that I am estranged from my son and that I blame my son for the death of my wife. Correct. So that's the basis for the estrangement from my son. So those two things right there constitute huge emotional, psychological losses. The script also gave me the information that I volunteered for three tours of Nam. Wasn't drafted, I volunteered. And what I know from speaking with vets, principally uh, two cousins of mine who are, who are vets, what we know about vets, uh, Vietnam vets, is that when they came back to America, they were reviled. They were spat on. They Mm -hmm. were accused of being baby killers. So putting all of those things together, Bakari, I came up with a scenario that involved very, very intense loss that Paul has experienced. In addition to being rejected by the country that I volunteered to go and fight for. So those rejections and those losses um, presented to me a scenario in which I'm now understanding that Paul is deeply disaffected, disassociated from society, disassociated and disconnected from self. 
they are the bases for the anguish and the, um, the turmoil. Yep. And then we have the guilt associated with what happened with Norm, Chadwick's character. For mm-hmm. those, I don't want to give it away for anybody who maybe hasn't seen the film. But Everybody should have seen it, but go ahead. I'm listening. It's, pl- yeah. it's playing like a movie in my head right now. Yeah, the <laughs> guilt, man. So you have all this, this profound guilt. You have this loss. You have this disaffection. You have this disassociation, this disconnection. They are the bases for the anguish that's roiling inside of me that I'm trying to come to terms with. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans at Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. You know, one of the things that stuck out to me, and I have to ask this question, I'd be remiss. We'll get back into the veteran aspect. of Sure, sure, sure. Why do you think it was so important to tell the story of black Vietnam GIs? Because that story has never been told. We are always on the periphery to, you know, quote unquote, the main stories that have been presented in in entertainment, in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And our... Presenting a story of, of, of Vietnam or the Vietnam experience through the prism of the brothers who were there. Those stories do not get told. And I'm sure you know, you know, at the time of the, of the Vietnam War, African-Americans, um, you know, 11, 12 percent of the of the of the population, upwards of 30 percent of the fighting force in Vietnam. And the other piece of that is. These were kids, man. Yeah. I have a 19-year-old son. Hmm. My cousin went to Nam 18 years old. I have one cousin who went when he was 18. I have another cousin who went when he was 19. The same age that my son is right now. And my one cousin was drafted 
they were both drafted. The one cousin who's drafted 18 years old. And he told me that inside of a week and a half, he was in country fighting. Mm, From draft to in country in a week and a half. Week and a half. So it's important that my cousin's stories get told. It's important that all black and brown uh, uh, vets of color, their stories get told because traditionally, historically, our stories, our contributions are not tend not to be at the forefront. And that is why this film is particularly important as far as I'm concerned. And it was and it was um, uh, particularly important for me to be a part of telling a story like this. You know, I, I want to talk about the boat scene in the Five Bloods. I'm going to play the clip. I see ghosts, y'all. I see ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. Uh, they had come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Nong comes to me down there every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. Fish up. There are a lot of themes that the film covered that I appreciated. And one of them is post-traumatic stress that so many veterans suffer from daily. How did you prepare for this particular dimension of Paul's character? And why do you think you were able to capture so well the pain and betrayal and trauma that so many veterans feel? Well, as I said, I spoke with two of my cousins, who both of whom have, have negotiated PTSD. And um, they spoke with me at length. And it was interesting. They came, um, we sat down and we talked all afternoon. I watched them, I recorded them. I watched their body language. Now these are my cousins, I've been around them for many years, Um, but specifically speaking about their experiences in Vietnam and filtering my experience with them through that particular prison was really illuminating. And then to go on and speak with other vets about their experiences in Nam. And then I spoke with a, a, um, a veteran of the Iraq war. She spoke with me and she was a major, she was a, ma- a retired major. And the juxtaposition between being in such a, a position of responsibility, she retired as a major in the, in the military and having her describe for me what she struggled with with PTSD. And I took that, I took all of that information and I was hoping, and I'm making notes and I'm, I'm watching them. And I'm, I'm, what, what I'm hoping, Bakari, is that by osmosis, these things are kind of, you know, rubbing off or settling in, in, into me, into my body, into my organism. And then reading, um, there's a wonderful book, called Bloods by, by Wallace Terry, which is, uh, Bloods is a, is a verbatim account of verbatim accounts of uh, African-American vets, Vietnam vets. I read that, I'd read it many years when it first came out. I reread it. I read other books. I looked at film and all of this information I am gathering. And then it, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly perhaps, but it's like putting it in a blender yeah, and blending it all up. And then, and then adding some other elements having to do with my own imagination, my own creative process. And this is what I, this is what I come up with. And it's important and it's, and it's critical, actually. It's, it's critically important that in then sharing that with an audience, 
sharing that with my castmates. Mm-hmm. And I have to mention, you know, Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Norm Lewis, Jonathan Majors, and Chadwick Boseman, of course, playing with them in the film and presenting this work for an audience. It's really important for me to all of us, for all of us to present as emotionally a layered experience as possible. Yes. And I think, you know, to your question, if you have that as an intention, if I, as an actor, lay these, for want of a better term, objectives out for myself, and I'm trying to be as intentional as possible in communicating those things, both with my castmates and then ultimately for an audience, um, if I'm intentional about that, then hopefully one has some measure of success because that's what one is about the business of communicating. You know, I, I, I took away a lot of themes from this movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, every group of black men that I know saw themselves in that group of men in the five bloods, but yeah. there are two pieces. One is, you know, we so rarely see movies about friendships between black men. So that was Amen. interesting, Amen. but, al- but also your role, I can't help but be um, in the dynamic between you and David. It reminded me so much of your role as Mr. Carmichael in Crooklyn, which is one of the realest portrayals of a black father that I've ever seen in film. Why have you embraced that role of fatherhood in so many of your roles? And talk about how important it is to you personally to show the fullness of black fathers in your work. One, because I'm a father myself. Frequently, oh, how can I put this sensitively? You know, a lot of time, a lot of times um, when you hear about any, any person talking about their success, I'm talking about black men now, specifically mm-hmm. black men. And oftentimes they'll thank their moms. Yeah. Oftentimes they'll thank them. And and that's fair enough, right? Um, Not infrequently, they have been raised by their mamas. They've been raised in single parent, right? And every time I I, I hear somebody say, I want to thank my mom. I want to thank my mom. And I get that. I understand that. But there's a piece of me that said, God, where was your dad? Where was your pops? And I want to defend the dads. Um, because while we all make mistakes, and I'm hearing children in the background there, so I'm assuming you're 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 a parent. Yeah, you hear my you hear my twins. I have two year old toddlers, Sadie and oh, Stokely. Okay, Stokely and who? Sadie, Sadie and Stokely. Yep, got you. So I want to represent the man. I want to represent myself. Yeah, I want to represent you know cats that I know who are, who are you know responsible to their in raising their kids. So I think my answer to your question is. On some level, I want to reflect back some part of my own reality as a father, as a parent who happens to be black, not as a black parent. I'm a parent and I happen to be black. And I want to reflect back to audiences some aspect of my own reality. But Mm -hmm. when you speak about Crooklyn, when I did Crooklyn, I was not a dad yet. You played it. You played it like that. That is a that was a perfect role. God bless it. Knock on wood. And I, and I, well, again, I think what that speaks to is something that is always part of my job every time I work. And that is getting to the center of as much as I can 
getting to the center of the humanity of who this person is, no matter what they do, who is this human being and what makes this human being the human being that they are. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, that goes for whether I'm playing, you know, Rodney Little in Clockers, whether I'm playing Mr. Rose in, in the Cider House Rules, flawed individuals, but where, who are these human beings? And my job is to uh, investigate the humanity of who those people are. Before I get you out of here, I just, I'd be remiss if, if I didn't recognize Chadwick Bozeman, who's a great South Carolinian and HBCU alum. Oh, yeah. Uh, who has transitioned to an ancestor since filming this movie. What did you take away from working with Chadwick, especially knowing now that as you were filming, he was terminally ill at the time? Yeah. I think I, the word I would use is uh, grace. He was a, a, a graceful and a gracious human being. I use the term grace because, and I've said it frequently at this, at this point in the proceedings, I really appreciated the way that he, the Chadwick communicated. My family came to visit while we were in Thailand. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated the way that Chadwick communicated with my then 17 year old son. He didn't have to do that. I mean, I, he wasn't doing it to impress me. It wasn't about me. It was about his the way that he communicated with my son. And uh, I really appreciated that. I observed how he dealt with his audiences. Um, you know, he's on the back of the mega success of Black Panther. Uh, he was human, he was humble, and he was gracious. So I will take from him the grace mm. that I recall him exhibiting. A lesson for all of us, a lesson for me, certainly a lesson for all of us. Yeah, may he rest in power. Before I let you go, talk to me about The Harder They Fall in Harlem's Kitchen. What are these projects about and when can we expect to see them? Yeah, thank you. Um, Harlem's Kitchen, I can be really quick about that. Um, ABC pulled the plug on that. That will not happen. That is oh, not happening. Man, I, I got to do, I spent all, I've been out here watching all these movies and doing all this research. I got to well, start. No, no, but, but I, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven not knowing that that, that <laughs> happened with Harlem's Kitchen because it happened relatively recently. They kept saying they were going to do it. We were going to do it. And they kept pushing back the start date. But then just recently, it's it's not happening. Um, the Harder They Fall, I'm really excited about The Harder They Fall. It is a tale of the Old West told mm -hmm. from the point of view of the Black people who inhabited the Old West. And I see you smiling. I'm smiling, too, because, you know, this is, again, a scenario in which our presence it was almost as if we weren't there. I know. You only think Western, they're, they're full of white boys. And you're like, wait a minute. There you go. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Right, <laughs> and, and 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 we were there. You know, I'm not sure exactly what the statistic was, but some people say, you know, in some areas of the Old West, three out of four cowboys were black or of color. Mm. Right? Right? Yeah. Wow. Who knew? So, uh, you know, that's that particular statistic Maybe debatable. Maybe it was not three out of four. Maybe it was two out we of four. We were still there. We were there, we were though. There. We were there in much larger numbers than historically we are given credit for. So this film, The Harder They Fall, tells the story of the Old West from the point of view of the Black people who were there. Uh, Stagecoach Mary, Bill Pickett. I played U.S. Deputy Marshal Bass Reeves. 
a really, I haven't seen the cut, you know, the, the finished cut of the film. They're still in the editing process, but I appreciate the fact that I get got to be a part. I get to be a part of telling this story from this particular point of view. And to the extent that Five Bloods is what I call a historical corrective. <laughs> I think that I think that the harder they fall, while it is a fictionalized account, it's still a historical corrective in its own way. And as much as it's presenting, you know, it posits the theory, okay, this may be what might have happened had these people all been together at the same place at the same time. Yeah. And each of these people that we're that we're playing are people who actually existed. So, Well, I just want to say thank you for taking a, a little bit of time out and joining us on the show. Always been an admirer of yours. A shout out to your son. I know he's going to be doing great things. Thank um, you and so I, much, man. I, Likewise. I look forward to uh, to seeing you in person very, very soon. Have a great day. Bless, Take care. Thank Stay you. strong. Thank you. All right, My man. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about the open letter to President Biden from Tamika Palmer, Breonna Taylor's mother. She wrote it a while ago, but it's relevant again because we're starting to see more states and local governments banned or regulate the kind of high risk raids that led to Miss Taylor's death. And we have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act recently passed by the House that sought to limit how federal law enforcement uses the high risk raids and perhaps most importantly, lowers the burden of evidence for federal civil rights cases that could be used to hold cops accountable when local DAs or prosecutors like Daniel Cameron side with the police that murder black folks. But like so many things, Justice and Policing Act is passed in the House, but stuck in the Senate. Why? Well, you heard this show before because we don't get rid of the filibuster. But if you read Ms. Palmer's letter, the ask are straightforward. Appointing people to the Department of Justice with a track record of addressing police brutality, reopening brutality cases that weren't completed before the Obama administration ended, ordering large-scale federal investigations into cases such as Breonna Taylor's and investigations into police departments with track records of police brutality. On these things, I think the Biden administration will do well and meet her demands. But what's missing here is accountability. And that's cops going to jail when local prosecutors won't do their jobs. And that requires that we lower the burden of evidence that's actually required or currently required in federal law that makes it virtually impossible to criminally convict a cop under federal law. And that's in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And that's what Republicans and some Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are holding up. And when these senators tell us they won't eliminate the filibuster, what they're also doing is telling mothers like Tamika Palmer that no matter what happened to their children, justice will not be served. So y'all can keep the academic arguments on eliminating the filibuster. We don't get the justice without getting rid of the filibuster. And in keeping his promise to mothers like Tamika Palmer, President Biden and Senate Democrats must act to make these kinds of changes to our laws a reality or run the risk of being called out for their broken promises in 2022. While I love the stimulus checks and shots in arms, we also voted for justice in November. And we expect real police reform from Washington before we go back to the polls in 2022. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Monday.
This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. 